This podcast may contain explicit language and feel free to use explicit language when you review the gist on iTunes. It helps other people find the show. It's Tuesday, April 14th, 2020. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Yesterday on a live stream, Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden had this exchange. I am asking all Americans, I'm asking every Democrat, I'm asking every independent, I'm asking a lot of Republicans to come together in this campaign to support your candidacy, which I endorse. I'm going to need you not just to win the campaign, but to govern. Now, that was, I have to say, helped a little bit by some editing to get past the glitches. And by glitches, I mean mm, septuagenarian fumfering, not Zoom hanging up. For two men whose combined ages is 155 or 30 years older than the starting five of the Memphis Grizzlies, they, they did pretty well. They did pretty well tech-wise getting together on a live stream. In fact, the setup required them to take turns and to aggressively yes and each other. First of all, it seems to me to be obvious uh, that people should not be working Other in way. the richest country in the history of the world uh, at starvation wages. Well, you I'll know, tell you... Go ahead, Joe. You know, Bernie... You and I have always shared a profound conviction as long as we've both been in politics. This country wasn't built by Wall Street. It wasn't built by CEOs and hedge fund managers. It was built by workers. That was yesterday. Today, Barack Obama weighed in, also supporting Joe Biden. He was just one man with a much better internet connection than Bernie or Joe. And therefore, the former president took advantage of the audio quality to deliver the occasional boom. And I know he'll surround himself with good people, experts, scientists, military officials who actually know how to run the government and care about doing a good job running the government and know how to work with our allies and who will always put the American people's interests above their own. Okay, that was a little bit of a boom that you had to read into to feel the burn. This was, shall we say, less opaque. The Republicans occupying the White House and running the U.S. Senate are not interested in progress. They're interested in power. Power, by the way, is not inherently a bad thing when directed in the right direction. It is good that governors, Governors Cuomo, DeWine, Widmer, Newsom, have a lot of power in their own states. Thank God for that, in fact. And so that is the backdrop to this moment, this moment when all the major figures in the Democratic Party agree Joe Biden should be president. And it just so happens to be the moment that we first as a country are being asked to consider that Joe Biden is guilty of sexually assaulting a young Senate staffer. For weeks, I've been following that story. I've been waiting for some reporting other than the alleged victim's account and the Intercept's report. And now some additional reporting has emerged. I don't know how much clarity it adds, but I do believe I can add at least a small level of analysis that will add something to the overall calculation. And that is what I do today in my spiel. Trigger warning, as they say, for obvious reasons. But it doesn't do anyone any favors anymore to pretend this allegation isn't out there. So we won't. And that will be, like I said, in the spiel. But first, 
We will all be voting in November and on the ballot will be in some way our response to the corona outbreak. Only we may not be voting in November or at least not voting in voting booths if social distancing is still a thing. How we vote, the exact mechanism will be determined by decisions we make now. Not even small decisions or subtle decisions or symbolic decisions, but in some ways actual decisions about mail-in voting that can be considered by Congress and put in bills, recovery bills. Because in-person voting at a time of distancing, that is a tough question. In-person abortion at a time of distancing is not really as tough a question, but some states are seeking to make it so. Joining me next is Miranda Yaver, who is a political scientist specifically in the world of healthcare, and I will ask her, will we ever be the same? And then I will find out if the answer is yes, is that actually a good thing? Miranda Yaver, up next. Okay, so now, at this moment, we are facing a public health crisis that is being handled or mishandled to varying degrees by politicians. But of course, a consequence of this public health crisis is politics. How will politics proceed? The mail-in vote is a critical issue and one that has been politicized by the politicians. Who better to talk about this than Miranda Yaver, who's a political scientist who is a postdoctoral scholar at the Fielding School of Public Health at the University of California, Los Angeles, through the LA Health Services Research Training Program. In other words, intersection, public health, political science, and so much more. She's very funny on Twitter, too. Hello, Miranda. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. So before we get to how they're going to do mail-in voting, one assertion that I've heard over and over is that this pandemic is being acutely felt in the United States because of our pre-existing conditions, which is to say we don't have a national health care system. Yet, as I look at the other countries that it's hitting, you know, if famously the United States is the only industrialized nation without a national health care system, I don't see a strong correlation between a national system and pandemic management. I'm beginning to think that there are choices that politicians have been making apart from the existence of a national health care system that is more determinative of the outcome of the virus. Are you, without even studying it in an in-depth way, are these thoughts striking you as well? Yeah, I mean, we it's no secret that the United States had a lot of missed opportunities to intervene earlier. Obviously, the United States does not have have universal health care or anything close to it. So, you know, we have a lot of people who are who are left behind. And we're certainly feeling very acutely the impact of tying health insurance to employment. But there are a number of other things that we can think of as accounting for the challenges of coronavirus in the United States. One is that the United States has higher rates of significant pre-existing conditions that make what might be otherwise mild cases more severe. So, you know, we have high rates of obesity, heart disease, diabetes. We also have, I think, a real distrust of government in the United States that makes it harder to have successful policy interventions when we need them. We have sort of this libertarian streak where, you know, it becomes harder for people to surrender that independence. We've seen that there's much more of a flattening of the curve uh, in countries where they have taken more aggressive so 
social distancing or physical distancing measures. Whereas with the United States, we have both a very fragmented political system where we have, you know, the federal government uh, interventions and state interventions and local interventions uh, or lack thereof in some cases, not to point fingers, but, you know, the South and the Southeast states have certainly taken longer, such as Florida um, and Georgia. We've also, you know, seen in some areas of the Midwest where, where they were slower to act. So we have this fragmented political system where it becomes easy for some states like the blue states, New York, California, to take aggressive measures, even though the virus does not respond to state boundaries. And at the individual level, a lot of distrust of government where people just sort of want to do their own thing, uh, this libertarian streak that doesn't really uh, lend itself well to effective disease management. So combining that with with a lot of people not having access to health care, as well as a lot of predisposition to pre-existing conditions and a federal government that was really slow to act, these conditions sort of combine for a, a really suboptimal response to a viral outbreak. That is true. As I look, though, at other countries, obviously Spain and Italy both have national health care. And there was a good thread put forward on Twitter by a journalist contrasting Ireland and the UK. And they both have very equivalent national health care systems that are underfunded, but, you know, seek to administer to all their citizens. It is choices at the executive level. A doctor is in charge of Ireland and a COVID patient who didn't know he was going to get it was in charge of the UK. And due to these different choices, it seems to explain a lot more than either the quality of the national healthcare system or the libertarian inclinations because, you know, the United States, I don't know if Ohio is very libertarian and Florida isn't. I mean, those states seem kind of similar in terms of a lot of things. It's just that the different choices of those Republican governors have much more to play or had much more of a hand in determining the outcome of the outbreak than anything else. Absolutely. And, and you know, we can compare red states that responded better than others. You know, Ohio is a really good example of having a governor who recognizes that a public health issue can actually transcend just pure party preferences. It is a certain reflection of our hyperpolarized times that it does come down to red state, blue state, but but we can absolutely uh, compare the earlier interventions that Ohio took to, for example, the slower interventions of Florida and the choices that Mike DeWine versus uh, Ron DeSantis have made can certainly be uh, reflected in, in the extent to which they have contained the the viral outbreak. And I think that uh, we're going to see a lot of devastation in Florida, especially as they've been pushing uh, or at least talking about pushing for for reopening uh, of schools, for example, uh, whereas DeWine, uh, despite you know certain measures that have been controversial, such as characterizing abortion access as non-essential um, and to be delayed, uh, for the most part, has done a, a highly effective job uh, of making decisions based on public health as opposed to towing the party line on postponing aggressive interventions. I don't know if you've been covering or following the uh, abortion debate Very specifically. Very <laughs> Okay, so it seems to me, you tell me that Texas, Ohio, they both tried to do the thing where they call abortion yeah. non-essential. And Alabama but there's been and a Kentucky little... as well. Yeah. Yes, 
From what I'm understanding, there seems to be a little bit of a divide based on that which is logical and that which is not among those states. Have you seen that? So you've got Alabama, Mississippi, Kentucky, Ohio, and Texas, all of whom have characterized abortion as non-essential uh, health services. Um, and the importance of, of defining something as non-essential is it means it can be delayed. And now everything's been going into the courts. And so there's uncertain legal status as to abortion access. There has been this odd thing about the justifications, which is, well, we need to conserve healthcare resources and PPE, except that a lot of most abortions are not happening at the hospitals that are being overrun. And if people don't have abortion access, they're carrying pregnancies to term, and then they're using more healthcare resources and more PPE. And so there is this sort of logical inconsistency in this argument, but the Texas case has petitioned to the Supreme Court. And so now we're waiting on that. And obviously that will have nationwide implications. Yeah. And the fact is that whatever PPP would be used during an actual birth is more significant than during any procedure about an abortion. But, yes, very much so. Um, and so that, you know, that really calls into question the motivations, which, you know, I, I think we can all speculate about, uh, especially given the ideological nature of, of the states that have been doing, uh, making these efforts. The political scientist in me who studies the political nature of judicial decision-making can certainly speculate as to how the Supreme Court is going to, to rule on this. So I wouldn't be surprised if it's 5-4 on party line, especially because John Roberts is, is not someone who has been particularly swingy on abortion issues. He dissented in whole woman's health, but we'll see. Let's talk about voting. Um, They held an election in Wisconsin, an election insofar as there were a couple of polling places open and a few people got to vote. So I guess we could call it an election. Uh, My first question is, can they retroactively, I don't know who the they is, can a municipality, a state, someone who runs elections, it would have to be a state, look back and say, although there were a couple of uh, markers of what normally is an election, it was insufficient. That doesn't really count as election day. Would that be within a state's ability to look back and say, well, that that didn't count. We're going to have to do it again. I think that the divided government factor uh, combined with sort of the challenge that, you know, people were able to request absentee ballots and and if they wanted to show up to the polling place, they could. That basically no one was impeding their ability to to go to their polling place if they had not received their <laughs> absentee ballot. The problem of, is that people were forced to choose between protecting their public health and voting. But I think that because the Supreme Court endorsed it, um, endorsed the uh, just uh, affirming the absentee ballot deadline, I don't I don't see any likely scenario in which things get overturned. Yeah, no one impeded it. Something on the microbial level impeded yeah. it, but it's not a I wouldn't call that a one. It's not an um, institution. It wasn't an institutional <laughs> barrier yeah. to them showing up to their polling place in the same way that that, you know, a last minute change in identification requirements where it would take a while to be able to obtain an ID in the first place or, you know, something like that. Yeah, that's weird, though. By that logic, you know, having Election Day, like a hurricane hit on Election Day and a governor not canceling it or having, you know, the election 
the sites literally be on fire and then saying, oh, it doesn't matter. No one is impeding it. Yeah. It, you could get away with it, that. Yeah, it's, it's really obscene. Um, technically, they were able to show up and vote, but only at the risk of their health. And it, it definitely sets a dangerous precedent for elections to come. So I did want to ask you, there is the argument often against expanded voting is voter fraud. Mm -hmm. And uh, on this show, it's been well documented that examples of actual voter fraud are few and far between and greatly exaggerated. So stipulated. But there are some aspects to a mail-in ballot that at least in the hypothetical, I can't quite dismiss as oh, that's not something at all to be worried about. And among them are the fact that a mail-in ballot isn't exactly the secret a secret ballot. And a secret ballot is an innovation in terms of election security. And so rather than have me say it, I was listening on my show the other week, I played extensive remarks by Representative Thomas Massey of Kentucky, and he was making terrible arguments about why everyone should get together and vote during a pandemic. Let's all go to the Capitol and have to vote in person. Well, Mike, I first have one scold you for not giving me a warning that Thomas Massey didn't give the most insightful advice on the planet. Right. (laughs) Right. Sometimes I get excited when someone who I disagree with 93% of the time makes an argument that I don't even think is good, but I think it's not so easy to rebut out of hand, but I'd like for you to have a crack at it. So this is what he told a Cincinnati radio station before staging his failed attempt to make everyone vote in person. But this was just talking about the narrow provision of mail-in ballots and why he's against them and why they might be unsafe or suboptimal. Can we play that clip? But with the American people, one of the major precepts of voting in America is that you get to cast an anonymous ballot, okay? And that's guaranteed when you walk behind that curtain in the voting booth, okay? They don't allow somebody behind that curtain with you, and here's why they don't. If somebody went out to buy votes, and they and they offered a thousand people a hundred dollars each to walk into a precinct and vote. The only thing that stops that from happening right now is when the person goes behind the curtain. The other person who's trying to buy their vote can't be sure that they actually got the result they were intending. But when you do mail-in ballots, somebody can sit at the kitchen table with the voter with a hundred-dollar bill or twenty-dollar bill, whatever, mm-hmm. and and say, okay, I want to see you mark this ballot and sign it, lick the envelope and put the stamp on it, and then I'll give you the $100 bill. Okay, so he is raising good faith or bad faith. I would say he's raising a concern that either is legit or will certainly seem legit to a voter of good faith. What would you say about that concern? One thing that, that I would say is that we have three states that do all mail voting, Colorado, Oregon, and Washington, and there haven't been documented cases, systemic voter fraud. There's certainly nothing in the way of uh, systemic issues. Um, the only case that we can find was North Carolina's 9th District, which was a really egregious outlier, ironically, by the Republican candidate. So the fact that we have three states that do all mail balloting and that we're not observing the kind of voter fraud that Congressman Massey is concerned about should give us confidence that expanding mail-in balloting in other states would also not produce kind of fraud that should undermine our view of of the election integrity. 
So lastly, Miranda, is there anything that you've been thinking a lot about in terms of the intersection of this pandemic and politics or thing, a thing that isn't being talked about a lot could be an unintended consequence, could be something staring at us that we're just ignoring that you wanted to talk about. Something that you, that you and I haven't talked about, but that's really important uh, is the Postal Service. <laughs> I don't think that most of us have thought of the USPS as being this integral part of our democracy. But as we've talked about the importance of expanding vote by mail, we need a functioning post office in order to do that. And right now, then the White House recently rejected a bailout of the USPS. And it's almost inconceivable to not have a functioning postal service is something that I think that we really take for granted. But it's not just the Postal Service in and of itself. It's not just about being able to get our mail. It could potentially be about our ability to literally participate in democracy. And that's a really scary thought to have going on alongside this pandemic. See, that's the galaxy brain next level way to deal with the voting issue. You allow for mail-in votings, but you just do away with the post office so that the only people can afford to do it are, you know, hiring private carriers. And guess who that favors? There's been a lot of speculation about whether it's that's literally the reason why the White House is rejecting funding the post office and we're bailing out the cruise industry, (laughs) um, but not the post office. Arguably, one of them is a lot more essential than the other. And so, you know, I've had to readjust my thinking a little bit because I'm somewhat of a cynic by nature. I'm probably being too cynical when I'm thinking that it's about trying to obstruct more systemic vote by mail. But I'm certainly not the only one who has drawn that conclusion about the White House decision making. And it's a pretty scary thought because, you know, who we vote for as a partisan issue, but whether we can vote shouldn't be. Maybe we combine the two, you know, send a postcard via the princess of the sea. Whenever yeah. whenever she chugs out of the Gulf of Mexico, right. you'll see how my vacation was. Have carnival crews <laughs> just deliver our ballots mm-hmm. and, you know, yeah. uh, that's a terrifying that's right. thought. Spe- no, I, so I was really astonished when I saw that uh, an article that cruise bookings were actually increasing right now. And I'm thinking like... Gosh, Americans' priorities are really odd right now. Uh, they're yeah. not—they're not fighting for voting rights, but they are fighting for cruises, even though they seem to be floating petri dishes right now. Um, you don't want—you don't want to be so cynical as to totally buy into the Darwin Awards, but my God, yeah, I think my we're God, Ameri- my God, my fellow Americans. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Dr. Miranda Yaver is a political scientist who teaches at the Fielding School of Public Health at UCLA. Thanks so much, Miranda. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. And now the spiel. For weeks, I have been aware, maybe you have too, that a woman named Tara Reid had alleged that in 1993, she was sexually assaulted by Joe Biden when he was a powerful senator from the state of Delaware. Now, even if you weren't aware of that allegation, I'm sure you were aware of the allegations, more than allegations, really, documented instances where Joe Biden touched or massaged or was weirdly handsy with a woman in a public setting. Different women. And Tara Reid was one of those women. She publicly accused Biden of uncriminal handsiness back in the fall. But a few weeks ago, she went on the record with The Intercept to expand her account to include that of rape. Rape. 
Here she tells Katie Halper what happened to her in 1993. So she had been asked to give a gym bag to the senator and found herself alone with him in what was, she said, a corridor under the Capitol complex. And I remember my legs had been hurting from the marble, you know, of the Capitol, mm-hmm. like walking. And I, so I remember that kind of stuff. I remember like I was wearing a blouse and he just had me up against the wall and the wall was cold. And I remember he, it happened all at once. The gym bag, I don't know where it went. I handed it to him, it was gone. And then his hands were on me and underneath my clothes. And um, yeah, and then he went, oh, he went down my skirt, but then up inside it. And he uh, penetrated me with his fingers, whatever. And um, I, uh, he was kissing me at the same time and he was saying something to me. He said several things and I can't remember everything he said. I remember a couple of things. I remember him saying first, before, like as he was doing it, do you want to go somewhere else? And then him saying to me, when I pulled away, he um, got finished doing what he was doing and I kind of was pulled back and he said, he said, come on, man, I heard you liked me. Having heard this and read some supplementary material, I did not form an opinion on the accuracy of the claim because I did not have all the or even enough evidence to go on. It was reported accurately, actually, that Reed has changed her name a couple times. Once after leaving an abusive marriage, she has used different names to post things online and under a different name wrote lavish praise of Vladimir Putin. She also, through social media accounts, was very complimentary to the man she calls her former boss, Joe Biden. None of this actually affected my opinion. It's pretty, I don't know, 1965, 1975 to think that sexual assault survivors can never change their stories in any way. And while it's pretty 2018, to be highly suspicious of someone using social media to fawn over Vladimir Putin. With that also, I say, who cares? Because either a woman was sexually assaulted or she wasn't. And whether that woman has some weird or inconsistent political views does not play a role in the basic truth of her underlying claim. And let's be clear on what the claim is. I've said sexual assault. I also made a reference to rape. But because that's what it is. Joe Biden is being accused of rape. According to the FBI's Uniform Crime Report Summary Reporting System, they recently redefined rape to mean the penetration, no matter how slight, of the vagina or anus with any body part or object or oral penetration by a sex organ of another person without the consent of the victim. Any body part. Any body part. Penetration. So Joe Biden either raped Tara Reid or he didn't. And if he did, that's a horror and a crime. And if he didn't, but is being accused of doing so, that's a calumny. There isn't a pile, tons of evidence that would convince a fair-minded observer outside the situation of what certainly happened one way or another. What we have been doing is applying past instances where we've all formed an opinion and asking ourselves if some of the situations in those instances map onto this situation. So Tara Reed's brother says at the time of the assault, she told him about it. That is according to reporting by The Intercept and Current Affairs, which are both staunchly anti-Biden political publications. The brother would not talk to the New York Times. A friend of Reed's did talk to the New York Times and said that Reed told her the story right after it happened in 1993. And you heard the tape. I didn't play the long interview. 
but it did have similarities to other stories which the public found compelling and convincing. Reed describes the cold feeling of the walls she was pushed up against, how her feet hurt having to wear heels and walk on marble. It evoked, among others, Christine Blasey Ford's assertion that she would never forget the cruel laughter of the boys who assaulted her. And yet that does not mean that Joe Biden raped Tara Reid. And it doesn't mean Tara Reid is lying or mistaken, though I don't know how she could be mistaken in her accusation. What it does mean is that there is an unproved and possibly unprovable accusation out in the public. But there is one line of reasoning that I do want to address. And it is Tara Reid's defenders essentially weaponizing the phrase, believe women, to shame anyone who expresses doubts or even less than full belief. What about believe women? You cannot avoid that exact formulation when checking out this story in social media. Alyssa Milano called for a full vetting of the charges against Biden. What about believe women, you hypocrite, came the counter charge. Well, the phrase believe women is blunt and simple and certainly seems to argue that women should be believed, need to be believed. But on WNYC, Jessica Valenti, feminist activist and co-author of the book, Believe Me, How Trusting Women Can Change the World, argued this. The sort of the bad faith responses to the idea of believing women, people who wanted to say that we are saying, oh, you should just believe all women are telling the truth at all times or, you know, those sort of surface level takes. And we just really wanted to push it further and say, no, the point here is that women deserve the same thing that men get, which is to be treated as de facto, both credible and important. Well, I don't know that men are or should be de facto credible. I don't know that should be the standard for anyone. So here is Valenti on NPR expanding on what she was saying on the WNYC program. You mean believe women even when it's obvious they're not telling the truth, which of course is not the case. We're talking about coming from a place where we believe women first, and then we can go on to the next steps. If you are talking about a criminal justice case, of course, you're seeking evidence. Um, but too often the default reaction is to not believe women and, or to automatically assume that they are being untrustworthy. Well, that at the end seems a little bit of a straw man to who, who would say that automatically assuming someone is untrustworthy by their gender. I mean, I'm sure for, I'm sure for many decades there were many people who would say that. But what right minded, fair minded, reasonable person today would say that that's something we should do. So she's only arguing against that. It doesn't seem to be enough fodder for a book. And also in this case, it's not conservative pundits twisting an idea. It's extremely progressive activists seeking to hold liberal Joe Biden supporters to a certain standard. And that standard, once more, is being defended by its champions as not meaning what its enemies say it means. But it is easy to see why someone might think the phrase believe women means we should believe women. If it means don't disbelieve women, then that would be the phrase. But don't disbelieve women isn't punchy or simple, and it lacks any shock value. Don't disbelieve women seems so reasonable. How can anyone argue with that? But if no one can argue, then not a lot of people will pay attention. So that's why it's not the phrase, and believe women is. So just like save the whales means that the whales should be saved, and ban the bomb meant nuclear weapons should be banned. Believe women certainly seem to be arguing for a default setting of credulity. But maybe that's not. Maybe that never has been the best tack. 
don't disbelieve women, a worse slogan, no slogan at all, really, but probably the better mindset. I don't disbelieve Tara Reid. I don't know. We all may be called to vote for or against Joe Biden without knowing for or against Donald Trump with actually not knowing, knowing if he assaulted women, though there is a lot more evidence that he did than Joe Biden did. And again, it's not a question of which one did it less. It is unclear what the most moral decision is when it comes to giving Tara Reid credence, imparting on her credibility or surrendering our own incredulity. It seems to me the best we can do is not be guided by slogans or taunts or hypocrisy, but rather to think critically and openly depending on where the evidence points. And that's it for today's show. Margaret Kelly is the GIST's associate producer. She has grabbed the Bernie Sanders endorsement with both hands and is slowly wrestling it into a sleeper hold, which is now an essential activity in Florida. Daniel Schrader, GIST producer, believes that health and life living is number one. What a silly, who would say such a thing? The GIST. We want to fully defund the WHO. Well, no, no, not the World Health Organization. The WHO, the ongoing Roger Daltrey, Pete Townsend side project that seeks to re-examine Tommy instead of a deaf, dumb, and blind pinball player, but to make him more of a, an emotionally unavailable Mario Kart savant. Please, don't fund that project. Oomperu, deperu, duperu, and thanks for listening.